Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today is Ancient History Day. Of course, I'm very excited because we are doing some Greek history. We've got with us today Manu Daborgo. Uh, she is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at Cambridge University, a public speaker and writer, and she specialises in ancient Greece and more specifically, the Cydides. And I said it right, just about. You did. You did. That was perfect. Welcome, welcome onto the onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very excited. This is great. We've uh, just before we started recording, we've just been laughing at uh, putting the words specifically and Thucydides right next to each other because I knew I thought I was going to mess it up, but it went okay, I think. <laughs> yes, it was perfect. Uh, Thucydides, and uh, if you want to say it in, in the Greek, you could say Thucydides. Oh, yeah, no, we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, right, first of all, I know who he was. You know who he was, but do our listeners know who he was? So can you tell us, who was this man? Okay, so Thucydides is a very interesting character from ancient Greece. Not only because he was part of and took play, took part of a war, took part in a war uh, that was one of the most important wars of ancient Greece, but also because he is the historian of that war and is, uh, he has the reputation for being the scientific father of history in that we believe, most of us uh, ancient Greek historians, that Herodotus deserves the name, right, uh, as the father of history. But when it comes to the accuracy and the methodology of historical writing, we think of Thucydides, who is his successor, so whereas Herodotus wrote the history of the Persian Wars, Thucydides wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War or the Athenopeloponnesian War, which was the war between Athens and Sparta. And it was a war of, that took uh, 27 years uh, at the end of the 5th century BC. That's a bloody long war. Uh, No, it's incredibly long. In fact, when Thucydides started writing his narrative, his history, he didn't really believe that it was going to take that long. And what happens is that in the middle of his narrative, you have a second introduction, 
where he says, in fact, this war actually took 27 years because there was supposed to have been a peace in the middle, which was called the Peace of Nicias. After 10 years of, of a continuous war, there was a sort of peace that was instated. But during this peace, the fighting continued. And then it was completely resumed after a few years, which then they said that was no peace at all. And therefore, Thucydides himself says we just should continue. Uh, we should write the history of this war as if it was one continuous war. So do we know anything about his early life? I mean, we've got his works, but do we know anything about him? So who was Thucydides? It is very interesting in that all that we know, most of what we know about Thucydides comes from Thucydides. So he tells us a little bit about himself. He's not too verbose in the sense that, you know, he appears not to, or at least he tries to appear like he's not making a big deal about himself. He mentions his own exploits as a, a general, very, you know, as a side comment. Um, in, so he's an Athenian. The big deal about Thucydides is that he writes himself in at the very beginning of the war as Thucydides, the Athenian, writes about the history between Athens and Sparta, about the war between Athens and Sparta. So he calls himself an Athenian. Although, to be really honest about the situation, he was more likely a uh, Thracian. We believe that he was... Uh, connected to one of the deans of Athens, yes, and that's how he was, in fact, promoted into the uh, position of general, but that his entire family uh, held, uh, they were a very wealthy family, possibly even part of the Thracian royalty. So this is in the north of Greece, uh, farther north. Um, we also know, for example, from later sources, a couple of later sources, that tell us that maybe... Uh, Thucydides met Herodotus when he was young and that upon hearing one of uh, Herodotus' recitations of a piece of his history, fell, you know, began to cry. Or in fact, another tradition tells us that uh, Herodotus came up to his father and said, wow, your son is, you know, what an upstanding son. He's very inquisitive. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, then uh, we also know, for example, that he caught the plague. Something very topical here. So at the beginning of the war between, that, between Athens and Sparta, in the second year of the war, there was a great plague that killed off, uh, we believe, almost a third of the population of Athens. And he contracted the disease. And, and there are several pathologies for this uh, disease. They don't really know what it was. It could have been anything from a bubonic plague to, to some sort of uh, type of uh, Ebola that no longer exists. We don't know. Um, however, he did contract it. And, and so he goes through a description of the phases of the disease very meticulously because he himself had it. Now, what's interesting in one of the traditions of Thucydides, is that Marcellinus, who wrote about a thousand years after Thucydides uh, lived, he says that his book eight, so the last phase of the war that he's describing, um, 
was written by Thucydides' daughter. Okay. Really? Yes, really. Most historians or uh, um, ancient historians now of Thucydides, they simply said, oh no, we have analyzed the narrative of book eight in comparison to books one through seven, and there is no stylistic difference. Therefore, no, it must have been written by Thucydides. Now reverse that argument. It could have been his daughter at the beginning and Thucydides at the end. <laughs> Blow your mind. <laughs> imagine, imagine that, that, you know, it could have been a woman this whole time and she just used her father's name. Wow. Okay, so let's just simmer on that idea. And then we think about, for example, what is, the, what is one of the greatest criticisms against Thucydides? Is that there are very few females. I mean, he records almost no one. There are a couple historians who actually say, why didn't he talk about X, Y, Z when she was so pivotal to these events? He simply cuts her out. So there is a almost intentional if you can think of it like this, there's an almost intentional elimination of the female presence and voice. And to my mind, I mean, if I were to think of it in terms of, you know, modern terms, I, w- I always thought of it in, if, to me, okay, this is my view. It's like a man who's overcompensating with a, with a Ferrari. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you Mine know? is bigger than yours, basically. Yes, well, it's it's kind of like, you know, I, I'm not really that good in bed, so I'm going to buy the big red Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> and now we reverse that argument and say, well, the girl is writing the entire history. She's never been to war, really. So what is she doing? She's overcompensating by eliminating the female voice entirely. That's, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I never thought about this this way. I'm sorry. This, it's a little no, unconventional. You, no, you've blown my mind. I, do you know what? We, um, for example, in ancient history, people repeat the same arguments over and over again, because, again, I'm going to throw in here about the modern history and, you know, all our amazing sources. Um, (laughs) But, for example, being able to interpret a source in a completely different way and using a different perspective is actually really interesting. And I've never heard it that way. So, wow. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean... I don't know. I mean, it's it's such an interesting way of looking at things. You have to remember that Thucydides cuts out women so completely that, I mean, they don't, they really don't feature at all. Uh, uh, I mean, there's only mention of them in usually by sidelines in 20, like 25 times where he talks about enslavement, when it has to do with enslavement or the massacre of a particular city where the women and children are either, you know, carried off as slaves or they're... Um, you know, released from being executed or they're uh, relocated. Or, you, or, for example, sometimes we'll have women acting courageously. Now, there are some instances where he does talk about women collectively uh, acting courageously. So they were pivotal, for example, in, in spurring the men on to battle. Or, for example, uh, when a city was being taken, uh, the women would be throwing tiles from the roofs. Um, so there is evidence of that, which I find interesting that there would be a mention of, you know, collectively women 
acting honorably or bravely in battle. But it's nothing compared to what a Herodotus would have put in about, for example, Artemisia. But still then, you know, the characters in, 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 in Herodotus are very much in the male gaze, you know. So he actually he does get exiled though, doesn't he? At some stage, do we know yes. why? So the the reason why he was exiled uh, is is very clear, and and this was a, a common thing, uh, you know. Generals would often be executed or exiled if they did not perform bravely or correctly or according to command, um, and so. Thucydides was told uh, to police uh, the, the region in which he was from, which was Thrace. And he was asked to come to the assistance of a city that was being taken by the Spartans. The commander of the Spartans, Brasidas, in fact, he was able to persuade the people of Amphipolis to come over and defect from the Athenian alliance before Thucydides arrives. And the Athenians back in Athens, right, the assembly believed that uh, they lost Amphipolis because Thucydides had not arrived in time and it was his fault entirely. And therefore he was exiled. And this exile led to 20 years of exile in which he was only able to return after the war. One source says that he was killed returning from his exile and another source and, and other historians. So modern historians believe that in fact, no, he must have re- returned uh, a few years after, or he must, he must have lived a few years after uh, the war ended and that in fact, he was able to return to Athens. That is the most ridiculous reason I think for, for blaming him. I mean, sorry, you didn't get there in time. It's all your fault. Even though the other guy was really persuasive. Yes, but it's it's the idea. So this is also, remember, Thucydides' account of what happened. So we're meant, I mean, as his audience, we're meant to believe that he had no fault and that, in fact, you know, what could he have done? It, you know, and the Athenians are ridiculous for having exiled him. So getting the account of, 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 uh, of a mishap by the person who did the, the wrongdoing <laughs> you're always going to portray yourself in the best light, po- light possible supposedly that well don't we all twitter instagram facebook everything's always in a positive light no i, I agree i agree so then we've got the peloponnesian war um and he's in exile so how does he experience this how does he see this where is he so during the Peloponnesian War, whilst he was, be- whilst he was in exile, uh, he tells us that he was free from then on to roam throughout the, uh, both the enemy and Athenian allies and live wherever he wanted to and, and just travel as he wished and really collect information for his history. Um, some scholars believe that he just went back to Thrace and, and only left occasionally. Most of what we believe uh, he did in terms of travel, we deduce from information in his history. So, for example, some scholars, and this is very, you know, 
it's, it's a probability science, if it even can be called a science. But what happens is that they believe that, for example, Thucydides went to Sicily. Why? Because he has very accurate information about the geography of certain areas and he knows exactly how uh, large a wall was, uh, how big fortifications were, uh, the distances from one city to another, the sailing times. But all of this, I mean, if, if you had enough information from people who had actually been there, it doesn't necessarily mean that he had to go himself. So, you know those arguments from his accuracy in his text are not necessarily very good. Second-hand accounts, basically. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the Peloponnesian War is happening. He is, as he says, moving between and travelling. How does he actually record all of this? Is it a diary? Is it uh, some sort of account? How, how, what, what is the evidence? That's a very good question, and uh, we would assume that he was writing this down himself. More likely, he had a scribe with him, because most of these um, accounts, remember, we didn't have books. We had long pieces of parchment, and it wasn't paper. It was usually something like a goatskin or sheepskin of that sort, you know, something like a skin that would be, could be reused and you could rub out words and then rewrite them. Um, and they would be continuous roles. So he would be writing this all down. Um, or he would have a scribe writing these things down for him. I was kind of hoping there would be some sort of long diary today, dear diary. This is what happened during the Peloponnesian war. I wasn't sitting. (laughs) So, You know what? Of all the historians, he comes closest to that, okay, of the ancient historians, specifically because um, a very very good ancient scholar, uh, Carolyn DeWald, she looks at precisely this in one of her monographs, where she looks at how he writes about specific events. And Thucydides is is extremely meticulous about how his descriptions about each event go and how it follows a specific pattern, how he always notes time of year, number, uh, important figures, the, the numbers in the contingents, the battle, how long it took the, so the duration of the battle or duration of the campaign, uh, how many people died, uh, what was the result? So what was the outcome? Who won, who lost? And, those were like the main elements of each description of each interaction during the war. So as you go through, I think it's from uh, basically from books two to five, you have almost a catalog of just event, 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 event. Do you understand? Yeah. And then in the midst of these cataloged um narrations catalog narrations you have these extremely rococo uh descriptions of you know speeches or or dialogues or uh or, or descriptions of a particular battle um or debates uh, it's just it's just beautiful to watch so in fact as as you read the history that's why a lot of people when they say, oh, you're reading Thucydides, ah, you know, ah, so dry. Well, it depends on what you read, you know? 
<laughs> so it's not it's not really dry. I mean, it, you know, if you're going to if you read the Melia dialogue, you know, it's controversial. Um, if you read, for example, the the narrative of the great sea battle at Syracuse, the last great sea battle of Syracuse, up to the death of the Athenian contingent in Sicily, who are drinking the red waters of the river Asinarus because they're so thirsty. They are drinking the blood of the people who are being killed in the water. It's just so dramatic. I mean, I remember the first time I read it, I cried. You know, it's just, it's so dramatic. It's so tragic in, in the Greek sense. It's tragic in the Greek sense. So you can get very dry descriptions, but you can also get very emotive moments being described. Do you think he was there at that point so he could describe it in such detail? So that's one of the questions. That's one of the, 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 the questions that we have. Um, my personal opinion about this is that he wasn't. Uh, however, the, but he was extremely delicate and well-informed about the Sicilian campaign which was between 415 to 413 BC. Um, It was one of the most, uh, I mean, it's one of the most uh, reused parts of Thucydides throughout ancient and modern history. Polybius, when he's talking about one of the battles in between, you know, in, in Roman history, he reuses the same method of Thucydides from that campaign. So it was extremely um, important to Thucydides. Now, whether he was there or not is extremely controversial. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we were funny enough before we started uh, recording, we were talking about this chap a little bit. Um, and he does come into this narrative. So, where does Pericles fall here, anywhere? Tell us about him. So, Pericles was the first citizen, according to Thucydides. So, he was the best among, you know, the best. <laughs> So if being a citizen was to be the best, he was the best among the best. And he was one of the most important figures of the 5th century, 
especially because he's the most well-attested and recorded. But the best attestations of Thucydides himself, uh, especially with respect to sources during his own time, is Thucydides. Now, we have several speeches purportedly that were given by him and were recorded by Thucydides. Many people nowadays believe that, in fact, Thucydides wrote these speeches and that they're not, you know, uh, transcriptions of actual speeches. But nonetheless, we believe that that was very much in keeping, at least with his type of talking, because otherwise people wouldn't have read it or there would have been some aversion or great criticism because he's purporting to be so accurate and why would people be reading something that is so inaccurate, let's say, okay? But, um, th- so Pericles was an incredible leader, political, persuasive figure of Athens. He was the one who, for example, divined the idea of the Parthenon, most of the beautiful uh, architecture that survives today on the Acropolis is due to Pericles. Um, he was also the diviner of the financial organization of Athens before the war, which Thucydides also talks about, in which they move the, the assets that were being held for the safety of the Delian League, which were Athens' allies, from Delos, the island of Delos, to the capital, the Acropolis of Athens. So he does that. Um, Then, you know, many people, then this is where the roads divide. Okay, so Pericles is a very controversial person to love at the moment. We as uh, classicists now have realized that, in fact, a lot of what he does is quite tyrannical. (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, in terms in terms of uh, like feminism, it's it, it's patriarchal to the extreme. You know, he is he is the daddy figure. You know, and uh, <laughs> he's uh, he's being quite widely used, isn't he, at the moment in politics? Yes, he's very widely used nowadays in politics, especially for because one. Boris Johnson is a classicist, so we revel in his recitations of Homer and and his um, uh, use of Periclean, uh, you know, ideologies. Um, and we also are, are very much uh, attuned to, for example, uh, Thucydides because of Trump, because his ideology that revolved around the Thucydides trap, which was kind of popular there for a second um, because of the China-US um, commercial war. But, uh, but, but this is not normal. I, I mean, this is not unusual, but on the contrary, <laughs> it's very normal. Very normal, I mean, but unusual. <laughs> no, it's exactly. So it's, in fact, of course, very un- not unusual because what happens is that Throughout history, we find uh, governments constantly going back to the ancients, be they classical Athens or the Romans, um, for support in the ways that they want to uh, act. 
especially now, for example, with the Molon Labe movements in, in the U.S. that are supporting Trump, you know, the Spartan ideologies that are being used. So it's, it's quite normal. Okay, so you mentioned that some historians believe that he died a couple of years after the Peloponnesian War. Do we actually know what happened to him and how he does die? Do, do we know anything? Okay, so Thucydides' death is, uh, it was either in 404 or in 397. These are the dates that we believe uh, he might have died. The ancient sources tell us that he, on, upon his return from exile, he was murdered. And um, from his history, ancient scholars believe that, no, he couldn't have died in 404 because he lived until at least a few years after the war. And given the information that we have inside of the history, he shows knowledge of at least uh, 397. That he was alive still in 397. What's your opinion? Uh, Just to make it a little uh, bit harder. I think I believe we, that he, he was able to make it back to Athens after his recall from exile. And that he did not die long after. And that as soon as he was settled political enemies of his probably stormed his home. And as he was writing or reciting to his scribe, he was killed. That's kind of a nice romantic way. I like that. I like that. I'm going to keep that ending in my mind now. Yeah, because remember, Thucydides' history ends in 411. So the war ends in 404, and he shows knowledge of the end of the war, but his narrative of events ends in 411. So it's in the middle of, you know, almost in the middle of the war, the narrative stops. So maybe it was his daughter. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to throw that argument. Okay, let's talk a bit about, his, a bit about his work. So we've, we've already touched on this a little bit, uh, which is Herodotus. Does he actually mention Herodotus in his works? And do you think they were rivals? Well, yes. So this is the thing. They were rivals. Of course. I mean, they worked in the same field and they were trying to best each other. That's quite clear. Um, Thucydides never mentions Herodotus by name, per se, but he mentions facts from Herodotus' history, which he puts right. You know. (laughs) Isn't that what all historians do? Let's put this person's facts right. I don't agree. Exactly. So it's a little bit of an, you know, intellectual sparring. You know, but at the same time, we have to remember that mentioning someone, even if you're not mentioning them by name, but knowing that people will immediately know who that you're talking about is already a form of honoring that person because you're leaving uh, them in the books of history. You're mentioning them in the books of history. I think that uh, this could have been the first type of historical plagiarism on paper oh no (laughs) oh no oh no uh the so historians at this time i mean he 
Okay, so Thucydides does this not only with Herodotus, but he does it with Hecateus as well. And he does it, you know, so, and, and these are the people that we know he is referring to. I mean, imagine that we don't know who else he's been referring to in other passages. Okay. Um, and what was going on at this time in Athens is that there was an explosion and there was an ex- intellectual expro- explosion. You know, it's usually referred to as the golden age. Uh, where you had a number of people that were doing different branches of philosophy, you know, and, and calling themselves different things. You had the Pythagoreans, you had the, you had the philosophers, you had, you know, Socrates and, 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 and Xenophon, Plato, everybody else. You had people um, who were doing history like Herodotus and, and Thucydides. You had tragedians, comedians, and I mean, all types of people writing you know, and this is just the entertainment. I mean, not to mention the actual working people who wrote legal speeches, um, you know, documents, legal documents, uh, government documents. So there was just an explosion of writing. And all of this writing was not anything that was copied from anyone else would not be considered necessarily plagiarism. And in fact, if you did borrow from them, it would be kind of like, oh, they were taking from me. So it was something of a bit of a, you know, it was a tip of the hat rather than, oh, that's copyrighted. (laughs) All right, I've got a true or false statement for you. Are you ready? Okay. He was one of the greatest historians who ever lived. True or false? Ah, true. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, if you survive on paper for as long as this dude or dudette, <laughs> um, I mean, you are greatest for sure. <laughs> you win. That's it. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> That's how I should say. Oh, you beat me to that one. So before we do finish, you wanted to also talk about um, Jacqueline de Romilly. I'm going to say that that way. I'm going to try and say it as French as possible. Because she comes into this narrative somehow. Where, where does she fit into all of this? Okay. Jacqueline de Romilly, you said it perfectly, that was fine. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, She championed Thucydides to an extent that very few scholars have. She was pivotal in our understanding of how he is read and what are the limitations of this author as a source and as a literary writer. Because as I said, he was both documentary and at the same time extremely creative and elaborating his his narratives of certain events. She was, um, so she was born in the 1910s and she was a French scholar. She was the first uh, woman to be nominated to the Collège de France. She championed the humanities and especially the classics throughout France, giving dozens and dozens and dozens of talks to schools, you know, always incentivizing people to learn Greek and Latin. And her major works were on Thucydides. 
her doctoral thesis was in fact translated into English and it's called one of the, it's a masterful piece called Thucydides and Athenian Imperialism. The, the English translation is from 1963. So, I mean, we're talking about someone that lived, you know, 60 years ago and still her work is extremely important to the way that we understand Thucydides to this day. Because what we were talking about before, kind of these ideas of when he died, why did he die? When was this written? Why was it written? Was he writing it on the road? So this is a composition question. Haha. People, so the, the historians before uh, Jacqueline, constantly debated, you know, oh, was this part written in 425 or was it written in 426? Now, I think it was written in 431. Okay. So they were constantly dis- uh, discussing what pieces of the history were written at what stages of the war. Jacqueline showed without shadow of a doubt, she was the first one to show without a shadow of a doubt that there were correspondences throughout the entire history. So some people had picked up on this, but she really kind of put it all together. And she says that you can find the logic and the design that this historian is using in the construction of this history. And that most of his history fits into a particular type of pattern. So a lot of the history we have to take with a pinch of salt. We cannot use his narratives to be absolute truth because he wants it to fit fit in a certain mold. Now, what is this mold? The mold that she kind of, elucidates for us all is that he is a logical, rational historian in the sense that actions are a result of thinking. So everything that a person or, uh, I mean, even just natural events, if some natural event should happen, for example, there was a tidal wave. Hmm? He says, there must have been an earthquake under the seafloor for there to have been a tidal wave. There always has to be a cause to something having happened. And in the human terms for him, it was that somebody thought something and therefore they acted on that thought. And therefore his narrative is all about what did the King of Sparta thought before he invaded Attica? What did Brasidas think? For example, in his narrative about how um, Thucydides himself was coming towards Amphipolis to save Amphipolis from Brasidas, the Spartan general, Brasidas considers that Thucydides is very influential in the area and therefore makes a proposal to the Amphipolitans to give up, to surrender before Thucydides arrives because he knows how important Thucydides is to the area. So Thucydides himself, the historian, considers what the other general is considering whilst making his proposals to the people of Amphipolis. So this type of thinking what I'm thinking is, of course, something that is completely fabricated. How would have Thucydides known what Brasidas is thinking? Magic. You see what I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, this is the kind of thinking. So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this one step further. Because of this, this woman has changed my life. (laughs) And I have gone on to actually map 
in very um, detailed form the type of interaction between people in Thucydides' history. And I use uh, the, the methodology of strategic thinking, which we call game theory, to see how each person was thinking strategically and how events were essentially games. Thucydides, in fact, talks about it in terms of the agon. And agon in ancient Greek means competition, contest, game. And he calls, for example, the moment, the greatest battle in his history, or one of the greatest battles in his history, an agonismos, which is the prize in a contest. So whatever one of the combatants won was an agonismos, was going to be the prize of this contest. So it's all couched in terms of games. So basically, Thucydides is the father of history, and Jacqueline is the father of Thucydides. Oh, the mum. <laughs> yes, there we go. I should have said that. So let me rephrase that. Thucydides <laughs> is the father of history. Jacqueline is the mother of Thucydides. Exactly. I love that. And I'm assuming she's, uh, she's well, like you said, she's been the, uh, the influence for your work. And it's made you fall in love with Thucydides too. Oh, yes. And um, the way she loves Thucydides is very much in, in the spirit that I love him. It's, it's in a very kind of um, sober way. I know your limitations. I, I know that you're not perfect, but I still love you. <laughs> I love that you're such a romantic. Manu, listen, thank you so much for joining us. That was really, really great to learn more about Thucydides, who he was touch on the Peloponnesian War and then finding out that someone loves him just as much as you do. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about him or her. Or her. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when Spencer Jones will be with us to talk all about the Second Boer War. Uh, the blank looks everybody gave Lockie down the pub a few weeks ago alarmed me, frankly. So I went and found the most entertaining person I know who talks about it. OK, he's the only person I know who talks about it, but he is really entertaining. So don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms, uh, Marcus is currently working on some benefits for you. So uh there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.